Nehemiah chapter 5. We pick up this evening where we left off this morning. Hear now the Word of God. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like the children. Yet behold, we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we're helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard that their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You're exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again I said, The thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and of a grain, the new wine, the oil that you are exacting from them? Then they said, We will give it back, and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen! And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of King Artaxerxes, for twelve years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. Once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. And may God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. Father in heaven, as we come tonight, help us to see the pattern of peace for the covenant community of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Nehemiah chapter 3 describes the cooperative effort of God's people working together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We've been talking about this for some time now as we preach through the book of Ezra. They rebuilt the temple. We come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is Artaxerxes' cupbearer. He comes back as the governor to help them to rebuild the walls. You read chapter 3 and you say, everything looks good to go. must have been a pretty easy effort. You read chapter 4 and find out it wasn't so easy because there was conflict from without. You read chapter 5 and you find out that there was conflict from within. We get to chapter 6 next Sunday morning and we're going to see additional conflict from without. A great deal of conflict from without. But this evening, we come to chapter 5. In chapter 5, what we get is we get a picture of what Nehemiah was facing amongst the community when he began to do the work. He was facing conflict from his own people. Have any of you ever experienced any conflict? Have you ever experienced conflict in your marriage? Have you ever experienced conflict in your work? Have you ever experienced conflict at school? Have you ever been in a church where there was conflict? You know what? Everyone in here, if you're beyond about, well, if you're married or old enough to be married, you could say yes to every one of those questions. And even the children could say yes to all of them but marriage. But I'll tell you what they could also say yes to. They could say yes to their parents' marriage, couldn't they? Is there a relationship where there are two people involved where there is not periodic conflict? No. There's conflict in every relationship. You put two sinners together for any amount of time at all and there's going to be disagreement. There's going to be conflict. How do you handle conflict? You know, some people's view of handling conflict is that they believe that peace will just happen. Let me tell you something. Peace doesn't happen. We have forces right now, military forces right now in Bosnia. The war has been over for a decade, and we have forces in Bosnia right now. Do you know what they're called? They're called, you finish this statement for me, a peacekeeping force. That's what they're called, a peacekeeping force. Force. They're not called a peacekeeping, it just happens. They're not called a peacekeeping, do nothing and it'll happen. It's called a peacekeeping force. Let me tell you something. Peace has never been passive. Peace is not passive. There is no such thing as passive peace. In fact, listen to some of the ways that the Bible encourages us in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be diligent to preserve unity. That means work, effort. It doesn't just happen. Romans fourteen nineteen. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We pursue them. We work at it. It's an effort. It doesn't just happen. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, he says that he must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. You know what the, the key word in all three of those passages are? Pursue it. Peace is not pa- passive. It must be sought after. The Bible tells us that peace doesn't just happen. Listen, life tells us that peace doesn't just happen. Peace is not passive. If the church or any relationship that has two or more people in it, there's going to be conflict. So what will we do to address the conflict? Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter whether you work in a Christian environment or not. If you will apply biblical principles in dealing with conflict management, you can pursue and find peace. If you don't find peace with the people, I'll tell you who you will find peace with. You'll find it with God and ultimately that's all that matters because the truth of the fact is is that God can bring peace even in your pagan work environment. Because he's the God 
potentate of the universe, correct? So let's listen to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's find out how we are to find the peace that's to be sought and to be had. A quick reading of the first five verses reveals that some members of the community were taking advantage of the political unrest. Now listen, the Persians were quick to send their slaves back home to reestablish their faith. We've seen that with Artaxerxes, right? And we've seen that with his predecessors and those that will follow him. Is correct? We've seen that he sends them home. But they sent them home with a very high tax burden. In the 5th century, the tax burden upon the Israelites was in some places as high as 40 and 50%. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine paying a tax of 40 to 50% and maintaining a house and an automobile and all of the other things? You wouldn't have near the things that you have now if we had a tax rate that was that high, would we? And this is not about what we have and what we don't have. I guarantee you we're not suffering under the tax burden that they were suffering under. But listen, there were some things that was taking place. As in all time, there were loan sharks. In verse 2, we see that there were some who owned no land. Now remember, what is it that Nehemiah is trying to rally the people to do? To build the wall. What is that going to require of them? Time. Why is it going to require time? Because everybody is involved. You're either doing what or what from this morning's text. You're either building or guarding. But everyone is involved. There is no exemptions. Even the people that were from outside the city have come into the city and it's a collective effort. You're either putting down the brick building the gates, cutting the timber, hewing the stone, mixing the mortar, or you have a spear and a sword in your hand and you're standing guard. We saw that from this morning's text, right? Well, let me tell you something. There's 50-some days is what it's going to take in chapter 6 to do this. 52 days, I believe, is what it was. You know what? That means it's over 50 days of not going to work. 50 days of not reaping in the field. 50 days of not planting your harvest. 50 days of not trading your stock. 50 days of devoted to building the walls. So listen to the complaint in verse 2. For there were those who said, We, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. Nehemiah, we can't work on this wall for 50 some days. If we do it, we're going to starve. They're going to shut the lights off. They're going to repossess the car. We can't commit this kind of time to this project. If we don't do it, if we don't do this, Nehemiah, if we do it your way... Our family is going to suffer. That's what you hear in verse 2. Verses 3 through 5, you get this idea of a loan sharking thing going on. There were others who said, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. There was some famine that was taking place in the land. Verses 4 and 5, Also there were those who said, We borrowed money for the king's tax on the fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like, the children like their children. And listen, it was to the point that there were some Jews that were literally taking sons and daughters of their debtors and putting them in indentured enslavement. Enslavement. You think that would cause conflict? You think there was unrest in the city? You know what they say that the, the number one the number one reason for divorce is in America? You know what the number one cause for divorce is? Conflict over anyone know? Money. Conflict over money. Make no mistake about it. These first five verses are telling us that there was conflict in the city over finances. Not the kind of finances that says we can't afford the boat, but the kind of finances that says if we don't, if something doesn't change Nehemiah, we can't eat. That's conflict. What we get from the rest of this chapter is we see three principles that Nehemiah's conflict resolution. 
Three principles for conflict resolution in the way that Nehemiah addressed it. Let me give you all three of them real quickly up front. Number one, the people must address conflict biblically. It's real simple. Number two, leaders must address conflict biblically. And number three, everyone must submit to the Word of God. If we're going to have conflict resolution, you have to address conflict biblically. Myself and the other six leaders have to address conflict biblically. And all of us in this covenant community must be willing to submit to the authority of the Word of God in our life. You say, how does that apply to my secular environment? We'll get to that in a minute, all right? Let's begin, first of all, with the first principle for addressing conflict biblically in the church. The people must be willing to follow biblical guidelines for addressing conflict. Look in chapter 5, verse 1 again. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Who's the outcry to? It's to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is rallying the people. He's saying, we've got to rebuild these walls. Our very livelihood relies upon getting these walls built. And what happens? The people come to Nehemiah and they said, we've got to talk. Do you know what's going on? We've got to talk. We need to tell you what's going on. Let me tell you something. The, the, first, the first principle is really simple. It's simple. Matthew eighteen fifteen. Jesus says this, If your brother sins, go to him in private and show him his fault. If he repents, you have gained your brother. Do you know what the first step is of conflict resolution? You going to the person that has offended you. Not to their friend. Not to your friend. Not to somebody else in the church. Not even to your pastor. You going to that person and saying, Friend, you may not have intended to offend me, but you've offended me. And by the way, let me tell you something. If somebody comes and says to you that you've offended them, it doesn't matter whether you think you've done it or not. If you're a Christian, you're obligated to see things from their perspective and at least try to understand what their offense was. It may have been a complete misunderstanding. They may say to you, Chuck, you've offended me. Well, how did I offend you? You offended me in something that you said in Sunday school. And Well, what is it that I said? Most of the time, we don't ever get to that far, though, because most of the time, as soon as someone says, you offended me, the feathers on the back of our head stand up. I'll tell you what... I'll, our chest bows out. Well, you offended me, people will reply back. You know what? Humility, humility is the guiding principle in the body of Christ. We've got to listen. I would much rather have someone come into my study and see me. By the way, if I offend you, don't email me. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you that there isn't anything more annoying in all of the world to me than for someone to confront me or complain to me about me in email. Email is a one-sided, flat, non-contextual communication. You can't tell anything from email. You know what? I can say to you, I can say to you, Chuck, I need to talk to you about a problem, about something that's taken place, and I can, I can look at him and my body language and my demeanor and my facial expressions and my inflection and my tone can communicate to him, this isn't a big deal at all, just something we've got to talk about. But you put it in print and sit send, and there's no inflection, there's no body language, there's no communication of intent, there's no way for you to dialogue back. I don't even address conflict in email. I might give one or two sentences, but I always say this. Let's have a meeting. Let's have a meeting. When you're going to address conflict, the first step in addressing conflict in the body of Christ or in any relationship is to address it head on. Don't be a mind reader. Don't expect them to be a mind reader. You know, you ever been in a relationship with your spouse? Driving down the road and they're sitting over there like sitting bull on a petrified log. What's the matter? Nothing. Really? Nothing's the matter? No. Okay. So you leave them be? 
And then a few hours or a few days later, they say, you don't even care. What do you mean I don't care? You don't care that I'm upset. Well, you're upset? Yes, I'm upset. Well, I didn't know that you were upset. You've got to be kidding me. You didn't know that I was upset? No, I didn't know that you were upset. And then this is the reply. I asked you if you were upset and, and what was wrong, and you said nothing. So you lied, huh? We want people to be mind readers. We want them to guess. And you know what? It doesn't work that way. We need to communicate to one another. You know, let me tell you something. If it's something that is so significant that it's bothered you and it disrupts your peace, talk to the person about it. Nine out of ten times, it's a miscommunication. They come to, know, they come to Nehemiah and they said, Nehemiah, we've got a problem. This time it wasn't miscommunication. This time it was sin. Now I want you to see secondly, the leadership must be willing to follow biblical guidelines for addressing the conflict. This is the meat of the message. What is Nehemiah's response when he hears what's going on in verses 1 through 5? Number one, Nehemiah gets angry. Look at verse 6. That might surprise some of you. Some people say, Christians should never get angry. Boy, I hear that all the time. Oh, look at you, Mr. High and Mighty. You're not supposed to get angry. I thought, ever hear this one? I thought you were a Christian. You ever hear that? Look at Nehemiah in verse 6. He hears this and he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. He got angry. Can I tell you that there are some things that people can do that rightfully should make you angry? You should be angry whenever somebody is mistreated or abused, like a child or a woman is beat upon. You should be angry at the exploitation of our children. You should be, you should be angry at the breaking up of our marriages because of sinful behavior. There are things that should cause legitimate anger. We should, be ha we should have legitimate anger at some of the things that we don't have anger at. There ought to be things that cause us anger that we laugh at. We watch on television and give our silent approval by laughing. When it ought to make us angry. Nehemiah hears what was going on and he gets angry. Listen, there is a time and a place for leadership to get angry at sin. Number two, in his anger, he still responded with a cool head. Look at verse 7. You may get angry, but that doesn't give you an excuse to fly off the handle. You must respond with a cool head. Look at what he said. I consulted with myself. I love that. My wife interrupts me all the time when I'm having a conversation with myself. She says to me, you want to include everybody else? Because I'm a little schizophrenic. I have arguments with myself. I'll talk to myself. I'll play out a whole conversation of how it's going to go. And I'll do it under my breath. Sometimes I'll do it on the telephone whenever someone's called me, but I'm preoccupied and I'll be having a conversation with myself. One time a lady busted me on it. She said to me, what, what, what? And I said, what? What do you mean, what? She said, what did you say? I said, I didn't say anything. She said, yes, you did. You said something. And I said, oh, I'm caught having a conversation with myself. Nehemiah has a conversation with himself. You see what he says? I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and I said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother? Do you see the exclamation mark in your Bible? In Hebrew, it's emphatic. It's kind of a, it's kind of a rhetorical question. I can't believe that you're doing this. And then he says this, therefore I held a great assembly against them. Let me tell you what the Bible, or the book of Hebrew, or the book of Proverbs tells us a great deal about how to deal with conflict. Let me give you three proverbs that are be, that are good to guide to guide you when you're dealing with conflict cool-headedly. Sixteen thirty-two says, 
He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. 16.32. Be slow to anger. Uh, Let me give you another one. 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. 18.13. 18.13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. You know what? Whenever something makes you angry, slow down and listen. And then number three is this one. Boy, I'll tell you what. I, I quote this proverb all the time when couples come in to see me. 18.17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. You know what I say to folks all the time? There's three, ty- there's three sides to every story. There's his side, there's her side, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. It's not because everybody's a liar. It's because you're incapable of seeing things beyond your own perspective. And so whenever there's a disagreement, you see it from your perspective, and your opponent sees it from their perspective, and somewhere in the middle, there is the real issue of what's taking place. Be careful about listening to everything one-sidedly and saying, that's the gospel truth. Try to get all the facts. The first thing that Nehemiah does is he get angry. The second thing that he does is cool-headedly he calls for a meeting. Number three, he follows through on the conflict. Verses 7 through 9. He says, I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and I said to them, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Now, let me tell you something. Most leaders get angry, think about what should be done, but lack the courage to follow through. You know that, don't you? You know that. You've been in churches where they wouldn't do anything whenever there was blatant sin in the church. You've been at work where somebody was incompetent, but the boss would not do anything out of fear that it might cause them to look bad or out of fear of what the repercussions would be for everybody else. They won't follow through. Let me tell you something. If you want to have peace, there are times when you must have the courage to follow through. Look at verses 8 and 9. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers... We who were sold to the nations, now would you even sell your brothers? He says this, we were slaves, we were slaves, and now that we're free, you're enslaving your brothers? Do you hear hear what he's doing there? What's wrong with you? If anybody ought to understand slavery, it ought to be you. You were slaves. Your parents were slaves. We've been free for 90 years. Your parents were slaves. How dare you enslave your own brothers because you have a chance to make a dollar off their back? That's his implication. Verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, of our enemies? You know what he says to them? He follows through and he says to them, what you're doing is wrong. Then we see number four, what he does. He leads by personal example. He leads by personal example. He gets righteously angry. He stays cool-headed. He follows through with what's taking place. And then next, he leads by personal example in verses 10 and following. First, let me give you five ways he leads by personal example. Number one, he did not demand his own rights as a government appointee. Look at what he says in 14 and 15. From that day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 22nd year of King Artaxerxes for the 12 years. Neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. He didn't say to them, Hey, you guys go on a diet, eat meager rations, and come and work on the wall, and every evening go back to some tent where he as a governor, government appointee had some big spread for him. 
He labored with His people. He suffered with His people. He did without with His people. The former governors who were before me, they laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine. Besides 40 shekels of silver, even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Let me tell you something. It is not a small thing that the fear of God prevents you from doing certain things in this world. My Bible says there's going to come a day where that which was done in darkness, there will be, there will be light. The Bible says that every thought and every attitude will be called into account. You know, what, you know what Nehemiah says? Nehemiah says, I didn't do what they did. It doesn't matter what everybody else did. That's an excuse that we often give. Well, he did it. How many times have you gotten, uh, busted your children for doing something inappropriate and they've said, well, she was doing it, well, he was doing it, well, the other kids do it, and what do we always say? Well, if they were jumping off a bridge, would you do it? And your kid smarts off, well, if there was water underneath. That's not the point. That's not the point. We don't do what everybody else does. You know what? The fear of God ought to be what governs our life. I want you to see something else. That's the next one. He feared God. He didn't demand his own rights and he feared God. He feared God. Don't do what others do. Do what God demands. Look at verse 18. You see it again at the end of it. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. He says, I feared God. He had a fear for God. Where's the fear of God in the church? Third, he was personally committed to the work. He didn't tell them to go build the wall while he went on vacation. He was personally committed to the work himself. Look at what he said in verse 16. I also applied myself to the work in all of this. You know how easy it is to tell everybody else to do? Come and do, come and do. You know, to the best, to the best of my knowledge, I've, met, I've never missed a work day since I've been in the ministry unless I was out of town. To the best of my knowledge, I've never missed a work day. But you know what? I don't come to the work day because I'm the leader. I don't come to the work day because I'm the best at doing anything. I'm not the best at doing anything. You know what I'm best at doing when it comes to the work day? I'm best at following orders. I want somebody else to lead. I like it when Alan leads. I like it when George leads. I like it when Keith Davis leads. You know what I'm best at doing when it comes to that stuff? I'm best at just doing what I'm told. But I'm going to tell you what. I think it's important that I come. Because I believe that leadership begins by leading by example. Nehemiah began to lead the people by he himself being committed to the wall. That means that he took, he took his turn with a trowel in his hand. And he took his turn with a spear in his hand. You know what? There isn't any job too humble for the pastor to do. And that means there's no job too humble for you to do. Leading by example. We also see another example of his leadership. He was generous and shared with others in need. Look at verses 17 and 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials. Have you ever had a big group of people in your house? You know what? Whenever we have company over... My wife just gets so stressed out. She's running the vacuum cleaner and she's spraying deodorant and she's making sure that the, everything is in this place and that place. We always host the whole church. We host the whole church every Christmas. We have you guys come over, you know. And in Indiana, it inevitably always snows the day before you have you here just so I have to shovel everything, okay? The snowblower is left and right, you know. That's it. And, and Patty is just so stressed out about it. Everything's got to be perfect. And I, this is me, Patty. After five people are here, no one's going to notice. They're going to track in snow. They're going to go to the bathroom. They're going to get stuff out of the kitchen. No one's going to notice. But she says, I'm going to notice. 
I know is what she says. You ever been to Mark and Noreen's house? I've never been to their house when it doesn't, it doesn't look like a better homes and garden. I mean, they have, they, I think that they have different things to decorate on the walls for every quarter, you know? Every season, they have something new up. They've got different Boyd's Bears for this, and they've got pinup, pinups and pictures and blankets and throws, and well, I don't know where you keep all that stuff. You know what the point of it is? Is it's, it's, it's humbling, hard work to host others. Do you host others? You don't have to have some fancy place to host others. Just be willing to host. Nehemiah led by example. This is a government appointee. You know what he says? Come to my table and eat. You know what he did when he said that? I mean, what was the problem? What's everybody concerned about? We're not going to be able to eat. You know what Nehemiah says? The wall is more important than your work. You do the work. I've got a way to get us something to eat. That's pretty good, isn't it? He listened to their concern. He found a solution to their concern and at the same time was able to get the wall fixed. He was involved in their lives. There isn't anything more frustrating than that you have a concern and have somebody who should be doing something about it and you feel as though they don't care. They have no desire to fix the problem. Good leadership is concerned about the people's needs. Notice what else he does by example. He lived for God's approval. Verse 19. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. You know what? It is not wrong for your motive to be in your work that God be pleased with you. That's a good motive. That's a good motive. God, would you look kindly upon what I do for others? Do it for God's glory. Do it that God will be pleased with you. You know what the Bible says? That if you give a cold glass of water to one of God's prophets, that you get a prophet's reward? Just for giving a cold glass of water to one of God's prophets, to one of God's people. You know what? That's not a bad thing. Doing it and laboring for God's approval. This is how we deal with conflict. Sometimes we get righteously angry. We stay cool-headed. We follow through. We lead by example. And number five, he held the perpetrator's accountable. There's got to be accountability. We don't like accountability. No one likes to be called into account when they've done something wrong. Nehemiah holds them accountable. Look at verse 13. Do you see what he does in verse 13? This is, this is a Jewish tradition. What he does is he takes off his coat. He pulls his coat off. And, and, and in essence, he turns it upside down and he shakes it as if to say, there's no gold in these pockets. I want you to see that I'm leading by example. I'm not taking advantage of anybody. That's what taking off the coat is about. Look at verse 13. I shook out the front of my garment and I said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen! Nobody said, Hold on a second now. I'm all for doing the right thing, but I don't think that there ought to be any kind of accountability here. Let's all do it on our own integrity. Integrity had gotten them into the debt they were in. There was no integrity. There was a lack of integrity. Let me tell you something. When there is a breach of integrity, there must be clear lines of accountability. Right? When somebody violates integrity, then there must be clear lines of accountability because trust is not given. You fill in the blank. It's earned. That's right. They had violated the trust. So Nehemiah says, let me tell you something, folks. 
Not only do I hear you, not only are we going to do something about this, not only can you come and eat at my table, but I'm going to get those that have been taking advantage of you to commit in front of everyone to accountability to not be doing this any longer. So what do we find out then? You need to follow the right steps. The leadership needs to follow the right steps. How do they do that? They get righteously angry sometimes. They stay cool-headed. They follow through with the problem. They lead by example, and they hold others accountable. And then we see the final thing. The final point here is this. The only way you'll have genuine peace in the body of Christ is if everyone in the covenant community is willing to submit to God's Word and to do what God's Word says. Let me tell you something. There isn't anything more difficult in all of the ministry than to hold people accountable for their actions. See, we have a thing called a church letter. You know what that is, right? Some of you joined this church by a church letter. When, I, when Patty and I were first came to faith in Christ in Alabama, and then we moved to Florida to go to school, and we were going to go join another church. I, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't know any. I, I was just church stupid. I didn't know anything about church stuff, really. So we go down there, and I just thought you joined the church. You just tell somebody, hey, we want to be. We want to throw our lot in with you, you know. And we go to join the church, and the pastor says, how are you joining? I said, what do you mean, how are we joining? We were at Rehoboth Baptist Church in Dothan, Alabama. And he said, how, he said, how are you joining? I said, I don't know what you mean by how are you joining. I was a student to be a preacher, you know. And he said, well, are you coming by profession of faith? I said, no, we, we're both Christians. We've been baptized. He said, then you're coming by transference of letter. And I'll tell you what, I heard him say that, and I thought, man, i got to write my church for a letter of recommendation. I wonder what Brother Jim's going to say when I write Dr. Jim Knight and say, Dr. Knight, I need a letter of recommendation so I can join this Baptist church down here. I need someone to put their name on a piece of paper and say, Charlie and Patty Shields, are, they're, they're faithful. They're the real deal. Let them be members of your church. But you know what? Unfortunately, that's not really what it's about, is it? It isn't really about writing for a church letter anymore. All it is now is one church calls another church and says, take them off your roll, we put them on our roll. Because if somebody was to write to Memorial Baptist Church and say, hey, the Joneses have just joined our church, and I was to sit down and write a letter. In fact, we did this very thing. Let me just tell you the truth. We did this very thing. We had somebody that left our church because they became to be a, a subject of church discipline. They were doing something that was unbiblical. And they were meeting with the elders, and they decided that they didn't like what the elders was telling them. So this is what they said. Well, we're just going to go join another church. And off to another church they went, into another town. And Steve called the pastor of that church because Steve knew that pastor personally. And he said, listen, so-and-so has asked to unite with your church. And let me tell you that that person is currently being addressed by the elders of our church. We cannot give them a good recommendation to join your church. And that pastor said, well, I don't think it's any of your business about what they do in their private life. We don't care whether you recommend them or not. We're taking them. That's all right. We need sewer churches that take everybody else's trash. Because that's what they are. They're sewer churches. When they just take somebody, when they just take anybody, and they don't care about where they've been and what they've done, you know what they're doing? They're going to have nothing but trouble. When they become known as a church that has no standards, you know what they can stand for? Nothing. Do you know what they can call out in their church? Nothing. Do you know what they will accomplish for the kingdom of God? Nothing. Nothing. And there are lots of churches like that. And I'm not picking on that particular church individually. I'm sure that they do a lot of other things that are good. But I will tell you this. I'll tell you this. There should be accountability in the churches of the body of Jesus Christ. 
There ought to be some communication. I'll tell you this. If churches in America would begin to say this, if you confess to be a Christian and you can't come with some kind of a recommendation from another church, even if it is they were not very faithful, and we address that issue, then we're not going to receive you in a membership. I'll tell you right now that people wouldn't be hopping from church to church to church. There'd be some accountability in the church. And if that happened, there'd be some revival in the church. Because you know what would happen? I'm not talking about the Gestapo. We're not talking about the TV police. The elders are out on Sunday night with binoculars to see what you're watching on television. We're not talking about that. We're talking about clear, we're talking about very clear, very clear sin. How many times have you been in the church and you've known that in the church somebody was sleeping around or in the church somebody was embezzling money or in the church somebody was taking drugs or being a drunkard and it was well known in the church but no one said anything because everybody had this attitude judge not lest you be judged I had Pastor Randy read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a specific reason tonight did you hear what Paul told the church to do with the man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother what did he tell him to do put him out of the church and then he said this you are to judge the body it's not judgmentalism Jesus said this cast not your pearls among swine and give not that which is holy to the dogs let me tell you something you can't do that if you don't make a judgment call of who's the pig and who's the dog the church is to be about loving one another and let me tell you something the worst thing that a parent can do is never discipline their child you ever been around somebody like that you ever been around a parent who had a child that wasn't disciplined and the parent would say to the child, don't do that. And the child would mock them, don't do that. And you see that. You ever, been, you ever been in one of those situations where you just thought to yourself, I'll tell you what that parent needs. That parent needs me to whip them. You can't get mad at the kid because the kid is a product of the parents, right? You don't love your children when you don't discipline. In fact, the Bible says, he who fails to discipline his child, what? Hates his child. You know what? God has said that in the body of Christ, there's to be lines of discipline. Now, discipline, we, we hear discipline and we think this. We think church discipline and we think, we think, uh-oh, somebody slipped up and said a curse word when they were mad and hit themselves with a hammer at work. We're going to kick them out of the church. That's not discipline. That's not what discipline is about. Discipline begins like this. Pastor Randy, I just want you to know that my feelings got hurt when you said something. You know what he's doing? He's disciplining Pastor Randy. And Pastor Randy says, you know what? That isn't what I meant. I'm sorry. And, then it's, and forgiveness is taking point right to there. That's discipline. There's all different levels of discipline. Discipline is when you say to your children, you've, you've acted up, there'll be no dessert for you after supper. That's discipline, isn't it? Discipline is when you say to your children, you know what? You've not been behaving correctly. You're going to bed 15 minutes early tonight. But then there's this kind of discipline too, isn't there? Discipline is when you say, you know what? That was a serious infraction. You're grounded for a week or you're going to have to receive some corporal punishment for that or you're going to lose the automobile depending upon what they've done depends upon the degree of discipline right it's the same in the body of Christ let me tell you something if verse 13 wouldn't have happened this wouldn't have happened read it one more time and I'm done I shook out the front of my garment and said thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise even thus may he be shaken out and emptied and all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. If the assembly would have said, No way, Nehemiah, not us. You're not telling us what to do. It wouldn't have happened. That's why when you join Memorial Baptist Church, we say in our, in our own statement of faith that defines who we are, we practice biblical church discipline. That's not, that's not everybody walking around with a set of, set of church police eyes on. It's to say this. 
We want to be a church that practices what the Bible tells us to practice because peace is not passive. I had a bunch of New Testament scripture I was going to turn you to, but we don't have time, so let me close with this. Someone once said that when the church fights, the devil remains neutral because he gives ammunition to both sides. It's true, isn't it? Let's not take any ammunition from the devil. Let's follow the God's Word and let's pursue peace passionately at any cost. Let's pray.